Well, this first Sunday in the season of Advent, I think it might be helpful that we just review what Advent is. Uh, Advent's a season of the larger church calendar, not just the Methodist church, but of all the mainline denominations that begins just about a month before the beginning of the Christmas season. And it's actually the beginning of the new church year on the Western church calendar. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and it's the first Sunday of the new year in uh, the church calendar. Now, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning presence or arrival. And so we get whenever you have come to a place, you have arrived, and that is your Advent. Okay, Uh, in the season of Advent, we anticipate the arrival of Jesus or the advent of Jesus on two different levels. First, we seek to place ourselves in the historical shoes of Israel as they waited for centuries for the arrival of the Messiah. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, with its lyrics about ransoming captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here. We're remembering that our forebears in the faith waited for the arrival of God's anointed. On the second level, we anticipate Christ's second coming. And what the New Testament writers like Matthew and Paul refer to as the parousia, that's P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, his arrival. The word uh, parousia is the Greek word that gets translated adventus. Didn't mean to give you all a language lesson this morning, but anyway, adventus, it's what it is in Latin. And so the original word for advent uh, is Adventus, and it's a word that will be important for a lot of what we look at today and in the weeks to come. Now, everybody say with me, parousia. You ready? One, two, three, parousia. Yeah, that's what Advent's all about. Isn't that weird? Anyway, uh, everybody thinks, oh, we're in the Christmas season. Now, it's not Christmas till December the 25th. But uh, we're in the Advent season till then. So uh, to put the passage in Matthew that we just read uh, uh, in a context, we need to remember that this passage begins further back when the Lord has, uh, he's in Israel and he's in Jerusalem and Jesus is coming out of the temple. And he points around and he shows, he points to the temple and and to all the buildings around. And it reminds me of whenever Danette and I were kids, whenever we would go to Houston, we lived in Cleveland. It's about like living out in San Philip, you know, Um, is we lived, uh, we lived in Cleveland, Texas, and uh, a two-story building was tall in Cleveland. I mean, to get to walk on stairs was a treat. To come to Houston, get on an escalator, it's like going to a 
fun park or something, you know, and elevators. Whoa, man, that was so cool. But they would always tell us Cleveland kids, when you go to Houston, don't look up because when you're downtown, we'd find ourselves just walking around like this, trying to see the top of the skyscrapers. It was so impressive. Well, that's about what these guys from Galilee were doing there in Jerusalem, just looking at all this fantastic stuff. And they're just marveling at it. And then Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And then he went up on Mount Olivet and he sat down and his disciples asked him a question. Questions all day long today. Questions. And they said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then Jesus, as he uh, goes on, he starts explaining what is going to be happening. Uh, he's, he discussed the nature of God's coming judgment against Israel. That's what the leading question, that's whatever he opened up when he threw that out there. Don't you know that not one of these stones is going to be left on another? He was setting them up to ask a question. And he discusses the nature of God's coming judgment on Israel. Israel was being judged for its repeated failure to live as the people of God in the world. Historically, what Jesus predicted came with the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in Rome in 70 AD. For many in Jesus' day, this final judgment on the corrupt Jerusalem elite was tied with the parousia, the arrival of the Messiah, who would bring about justice and usher in God's reign over Israel and the rest of the world. But Jesus did something else here in this confuses people when they try to tie all this that he tells them at this time into one event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Lord, because you see, he's talking about two different things. He's talking about something that's going to happen immediately. And then he's talking about something that's going to happen later. And a lot of people don't catch that line of demarcation. And this line here will make a lot more sense if you understand this, where he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Because you see, the Romans were coming. And whenever they came, they were putting down a rebellion. And they were going to be trying to bring the people of Judea back under the iron hard foot of the Roman Empire. And they did that about the same way that ISIS does it. They would come into a community. They would take one person out of a family and leave the other. They would randomly take people from the families and they would carry them off 
and they would execute them up in the hills. And so whenever the people went looking for their loved ones after this had happened, to know where to look, they just had to look for the vultures because that would be where their loved ones would be. And so you see, they're talking, he's talking at that point in time, up to that point, he's talking about things that are, and he's warning about things that are coming. And that's whenever he's saying, woe to you if it's in the springtime or in the, in the winter, woe to you if you're pregnant. But whenever you see these things happening, head for the hills, get out of town. That's one thing. It was coming. The bad guys were coming to bring judgment. And then he starts on a different note where he starts talking about his glorious return. And so the subject has changed and no longer. Now, see, in the first part where it says one will be taken and one will be left. It's bad to be taken in that bunch. Right. But from that point on, he's talking about whenever the Lord is going to return and his church is going to be taken and the faithless will be left. So in the second part of what he's talking about, the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about it's bad to be left and it's good to be taken. You know, I was just, I got, I remember two movies. There's Left Behind. It was bad to be left behind in that, in, in, in that movie. And in Taken, it was bad to be taken in that one. But anyway, uh, so the thing is, is that in part of this, being taken is bad. But what we're looking forward to, we want to be taken. It's me, 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 Lord. You know, I want to be taken, you know. So that's why we pray and why we sang today. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We want to be a part of the harvest home that's taken the wheat that's taken into the barns forevermore. That's where we want to be. And so uh, uh, Jesus splits this final judgment into two parts. He speaks of God's judgment against the corrupt religious elite coming within uh, these people's lifetime. And see, another thing that really troubles people is where he says, I tell you, this generation will not, there are people in this generation that will not pass away until these things come to pass. You see, this makes sense when you realize that he was talking about things that were going to be happening immediately, but not the second half. It was going to take a while. And he goes on and he says it's going to be like the days of Noah. Where they're going to be marrying and giving in marriage. They're going to be eating and drinking and making merry. And then finally, and what you don't understand, what people don't, people don't know. They say, oh, you all of a sudden, you know, the storms came and the people were washed away. It took Noah 120 years to build that ark, people. I mean, it's not like it was just a sudden cataclysmic thing with no warning. And all the time that Noah was building this, it says Noah was a preacher. Did you know that? He was proclaiming to them, repent. 
for something bad's getting ready to happen, folks, and you don't want to be a part of it. And whenever it's all said and done, after 120 years of God's merciful waiting for people to turn, then the end comes. Then the cataclysm happens. But it was not without warning. They had plenty of time if they wanted to listen, but there comes a time when the time has come. And so that's what was happening there. He says, in the days of Noah, this is what it's going to be like. Then he goes on and uh, he uh, talks about, uh, he issues these two warnings. The first, like we said, it's good to be left. The second one, it's bad to be left. The second can be summed up in two words. Be ready. Let's say that together. Be ready. That is the gist of Jesus' message. Be ready. Many people find this warning scary, but it's not meant to be. It's meant to be helpful. It is given as a part of God's mercy and God's grace, calling people to safety, calling them to be ready. If you're the Lord's and you heed it, it will give you peace. It's kind of like the warning I saw the other day. It said, danger, do not touch. Not only will this kill you, it will hurt you the whole time you are dying. <laughs> now that sounds horrible, doesn't it? But it's helpful also, isn't it? I mean, it's a warning. And that's what Jesus is giving us is a warning. And it's a warning that we need to be sure and hear that he's serious about this. But all of us should have heard it by now. You see, if you heed that sign, you will have life. It's the same with the message of Jesus. If you heed Jesus' warning, you'll be like the young man who interviewed for a job on a farm one time. While he was interviewing uh, for the job, he handed a letter of recommendation to the farmer. And it said simply, he sleeps in a storm. I'll repeat that. He sleeps in a storm. Well, the owner found that a little cryptic and weird, but he was really short-handed. He needed a helper. And so he hired the man. Several weeks passed and suddenly in the middle of the night, a powerful storm ripped through the valley and awakened by the swirling rain and howling wind. The owner leapt out of bed and he called for his new hired hand. But his new hired hand was sound asleep. He was sleeping in the storm. So he dashed off to the barn. And there he discovers to his amazement that the animals are secure with plenty of feed. And so he runs out to the field and he sees that the bales of wheat have been bound and wrapped in tarpaulins. They're okay. Then he races over to the silo and the doors are latched and the grain is dry. And then he understood that letter of recommendation. He sleeps in a storm. He could sleep in a storm because 
He was ready. He took care of things when they should have been taken care of. We didn't see or hear that, Danette. Uh, that's what, and it happens all the time. Don't, don't, don't feel bad about it. It happens all the time. We're going to get new pews one of these days. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's what Advent's all about. It's what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage in Matthew. Be ready. If you're ready, you have nothing to fear. Everything's okay. And I can't think of a better time to examine ourselves and ask the question uh, than in connection with the Lord's Supper. When we uh, have the opportunity to confess our sins, to be cleansed from the past, and to commit to being ready from this point on. What better time to hear that question, are you ready? This can be the advent of the Lord coming into your life in a way that he has never come into it before. And so I ask you, are you ready? Reminds me of a the story where a, an Italian farmer was out in his field and an angel appeared to him. And uh, the angel told him that the Lord was going to be coming later that day. And the farmer got so excited, he ran uh, up to the Vatican and he, he told the guards that he had to see him and the, to the, see the Pope. And uh, they wouldn't let him in to see the Pope, but they sent uh, one of his uh, assistants out there to see him. And, and uh, so the farmer explained to him that the, an angel had appeared to him and told him that the Lord was coming that afternoon. And so the assistant got all excited and he ran up and he, he told the Pope, the Lord's coming this afternoon. And uh, the Pope got a real concerned look on his face and he went over and he sat down at his desk and he started working on papers. And the assistant said, didn't you hear the Lord's come this afternoon? And the Pope said, look a busy, look a busy. <laughs> well, let me tell you, let me tell you, the moment he's coming, just looking busy isn't going to cut it. Now is the time to get ready and to be ready. So you'll be busy about the right things when the Lord comes. Trying to look busy at the last moment is not what it's all about. As in the days of Noah, 120 years, and then there was no more time. In the story uh, that uh, Jesus, uh, well, in that story, you see, eight were taken in the ark. Everybody else got left behind. The story following that is about the ten young, vir ten young, ten virgins, and the five of them were foolish. And sometimes it's called the five foolish virgins. In that story, they all knew. They knew inevitably the bridegroom was coming. Only five were ready. The five that were ready got to go with the bridegroom when he showed up. How about you? Are you ready? So let me ask you as you come to Holy Communion, are you ready? Have you given your life over to obeying the Lord? all the way up and down.
Maybe he's asking you. Maybe he's been tapping you on the shoulder and letting you know that you've got bitterness and unforgiveness that needs to be dealt with before he can forgive you. Is there a sin that you've been reluctant to confess and ask the Lord's forgiveness for because you really don't want to let go of it? Is there a relationship that needs healing? Is there an apology that needs to be given? Is there an attitude that needs to change? And the Lord has made it clear that that attitude needs changing. I read the other day that a bad attitude is like a flat, you know, like a flat tire. You're not going to go anywhere until you get it fixed. And so it is. Is there an attitude that you need to work on? Is there something that you need to do in order to be ready? Whatever it is, I encourage you, bring it here to the altar today. Confess the sin. Commit to the action that he's calling you to. And when you get up from here, get up and go forth ready, washed and cleansed in a brand new day with the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.